Hello and welcome. You're listening to The Final Word on CGRU 1280 AM in Toronto. It's July 14th. I'm your host, Gabriela Silva-Ponte. Today, we'll be covering stories from Ottawa's tornado to a pilot project where alcohol will be permitted in parks to a gay speed dating event. But first, let's take a look at today's top news. First up, Ottawa Fire Services say the tornado that hit Ottawa wrecked at least 125 homes. Environment Canada confirmed that at least one tornado touched the South Ottawa suburb of Bar Haven on Thursday afternoon. Ottawa paramedics said a minor injury was reported around 1.45 p.m. Ottawa's General Manager of Emergency and Protective Services Kim Ayoti said in a news conference, thank God there was only one minor injury. CBC News reports Northern Tornadoes Project researchers were to arrive in Ottawa this morning to investigate further. Around 1 p.m. on Thursday, Ottawa Fire Services said they received a number of reports of a tornado around Umbra Place, just east of Highway 416. Ottawa Police confirmed they received similar reports. CBC reports Ottawa firefighters said approximately 50 homes were affected by Umbra Place. They added that they're going door-to-door to to shut off gas and hydro as required. Ottawa police said five families were at the Family Reunification Centre at the Minto Recreation Complex. CBC reports over 1,500 Hydro Ottawa customers are without power in the area. Officials also pointed out that there may be road closures due to downed power lines, trees and gas leaks. Environment Canada's warning preparedness meteorologist Monica Vaswani said, We're actually looking at a possible series of tornadoes. We're only confirming the one that we saw near Barhaven, but there have been other reports of rotation. Environment Canada issued a tornado warning for Kanata, Orleans, and Ottawa's downtown around 12.50 p.m., while other areas were under tornado watch. A second tornado warning was put out at around 2.45 p.m. and ended by 3 p.m. on Thursday. CBC reports Vaswani said details like wind speed and rating will be determined after the storm is over and a team is able to survey the damage caused. Many refugees are still on the street in downtown Toronto. The city's $250 million in federal funding for refugee settlement ran out months ago. As of Friday, no new plans to replenish or work around this were announced. Public Safety Minister Marco Medincino said at a news conference on behalf of Immigration Minister Sean Fraser, the interim housing assistance program has sunset, but that does not mean that some of the benefits of it don't still continue to linger for those benefited from it. He added, We are very much focused on being a partner with the City of Toronto, with all municipalities, with provinces and territories, so that refugees who come to Canada, and indeed all immigrants who come to Canada, are able to hit the ground running. CTV News reports Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada told them an additional $175 million was put aside for immigrant and refugee settlement services in the Toronto area as part of the 2023-2024 federal budget. Despite this, dozens of individuals continue to sleep outside the downtown facility on Peter Street. 
This comes after Toronto started referring refugees to federal programs back in June. Toronto's mayor-elect Olivia Chow announced that city manager Paul Johnson would meet with his provincial and federal counterparts today in the hopes of finding a way to, quote, deal with the crisis. She added, I am looking for concrete solutions for the end of the immediate crisis, as well as a longer-term action plan to provide refugees dignified shelter and housing when they arrive. CTV reports that the city hasn't received any funding since last year, when the federal government provided money for the costs of asylum seekers who used Toronto's shelter system in 2022. Ontario's Premier Doug Ford said in an unrelated news conference on Thursday that his government's plan to build more homes would help address this issue. He said, these are just the newcomers. We have to build 1.5 million homes. Union leaders of the Screen Actors Guild American Federation of Radio and Television Artists voted to go on strike on Thursday. This came hours after their contract expired and talks with the Alliance Motion Picture and Television Producers broke off. The strike was expected to start early this morning at 3 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. CBC reports the strike is expected to affect many Toronto residents working in the Canadian film and television industry. The dispute raises issues like residual pay, benefits, and the threat of the unregulated use of artificial intelligence. According to CBC, more than half of Canadian set films and TV shows are U.S.-based productions. Reportedly, they collectively employ tens of thousands from across the country. 11,500 members of the Writers Guild of America have been on strike since May 2nd. Their talks and contract expired, too. Buchan Knight casting directors Jason Knight and John Buchan told CBC on Thursday that it was too early to know how the strike will affect the local film and television industry in Toronto. But they said the city's production industry already took a big hit when Hollywood writers went on strike in May. Buchan said, Just with the writer's strike, we're down 70%. We're leaning into our lines of credit. CBC reports Knights said Toronto relies heavily on U.S. productions that come to Canada to showcase Toronto as New York City or Chicago. He said a lot of those shows have been put on hold because of the writer's strike. Screen Actors Guild American Federation of Radio and Television Artists represents more than 160,000 broadcast journalists, screen actors, hosts, announcers, and stunt performers. But the walkout will only affect the 65,000 actors from television and film production. They voted overwhelmingly to authorize their leaders to call a strike before talks even began. Honda Indy is taking place this weekend. The big car race won't happen until Sunday, but road closures are already in effect today. So here's what you should know about downtown Toronto's road closures. Lakeshore Boulevard West between Strachan Avenue and British Columbia Road has been closed since 9 p.m. on Wednesday. It will remain closed until 1 a.m. on Monday. All southbound lanes of Strachan Avenue from Fleet Street to Lakeshore Boulevard West were also shut down at the same time on Wednesday and will remain that way until 11.59 p.m. on Sunday. 
The city wrote in a statement released Monday, those who need to travel in the area should plan their travel in advance, allow for extra time, consider taking public transit or other travel methods such as walking or cycling, and follow signage to keep everyone safe. The city might be implementing a pilot project where Torontonians will be permitted to drink in parks. The proposed plan shows it will run from August 2nd to October 9th. Those over the age of 19 will be able to drink at parks like Christie Pitts and Trinity Bellwoods. I went to both those parks this week to see what people had to say. Christie Pitts goer Laura said she would definitely be participating. I think it's a pretty good idea. I mean, like one of the most foundational parts about a park is you go and you come to rest, reset, socialize, and I think it's a more affordable option considering how expensive the city is. Just come in having a brewski with a friend. I think it's a great idea. It's one of my favorite things to do in the summer is just come and sit, catch up, talk about anything and everything in between. So I think just being able to just have the option there makes being able to socialize, which is important, especially post-COVID. I think that's really important to have and have that option. I think if people are going to become a safety concern, that's going to happen whether there's like a pilot project in place or not, too. So I don't know whether it would help or not help. Voice actor Kyle shared the same sentiment. Well, uh, <laughs> I mean, most people did it over COVID anyway. And it's been a long-standing tradition of people having fun in life to do this sort of thing. Now, of course, there might be some sloppiness, uh, but I suspect it'll just make things better. And of course, be wary of the littering. We don't want any of that. You know, all the same rules apply. Don't drink and drive, know your limits. Have some sunscreen, have water so you don't you know, get heat stroke. And even moms Maya and Nikki admitted it is already being done and a pilot project wouldn't make so much of a difference. I think it's great. I don't drink very much, but I really enjoy sitting at the park and being with friends and having something to drink if, if, the, if I move to do that. I think there's probably people who will get a bit crazy, but I think that's happening already, so it doesn't raise new concerns for me. I do have a problem with people throwing bottles in cans, which already happens, so we often, when I go out with my kids, we'll check the sandbox to see if there's stuff in there, but um, I think that's not really a feature of drinking in the park. It's just people being inconsiderate. Well, I just think it's an equity issue because there's already people drinking in parks and we're only penalizing the already marginalized and that's unfair and wrong. So if it's like an excuse to put someone in jail, that's not what we need. We need a social safety net. So. But others, like James and Robert, who are both sober, find this to be a challenging topic. Um, I, I think that uh, it's already happening in a lot of parks, so making it legal is sort of a, a, an afterthought. Uh, I'm sober myself, so I have mixed feelings about it. Um, I think that uh, parks are a public space, so if there are people who are too young to drink or who are sober it's like it's important to consider them but also at the end of the day increasingly especially in cities like toronto we see people will probably just do whatever they want anyway so um so perhaps uh you know perhaps it's a good thing i mean i, I don't think people should be arrested for 
drinking with their friends in a park. I don't think that's where people should be punished. So it's a mixed bag, but I, yeah, that's that's my that's my final opinion. Uh, I also uh, am sober and have been sober for a long time, and um, I think it's great that uh, parks uh, are for the most part an alcohol free space because there's increasingly less of those in in uh, in our society and in our culture as a sober person uh, i one of the reasons i go to a park is because it is an alcohol free space it is somewhere that i can uh be where i'm not feeling pressure to drink or around people who are drunk or just alcohol isn't an, isn't a factor there's plenty of spaces in the city uh to go to if you want that experience but i personally am happy uh, to have one that isn't. So uh, for me, uh, I think uh, any pilot project uh, that uh, should happen also needs to take into account um, uh, the effect that introducing alcohol into spaces that uh, purposefully sober people use, like what's the effect there and what happens in that case? I do think there are safety concerns, but again, because people are already doing it and nothing is really happening, my concerns are already there and are not changing whether or not it's legal. Um, I think that increasingly public spaces in the city, um, like, I don't feel safe in. Uh, I think that that's pretty normal. I mean, whether it's a park, whether it's transit, you know, I'm sure you've heard a lot of, from many people about that. But um, yeah, I, I, I would say there is a potential for safety concern. Um, people are less inhibited when they're not sober. So, you know, they may, do things um, in a public space that they perhaps would not otherwise. So I, I don't have a moral panic about it, but um, it's definitely a consideration. Whereas for me, I do have a moral <laughs> panic about it. But uh, in terms of safety, I think any discussion of uh, safety issues becomes about like what's the security situation are we involving police i think a lot that's of people true. are going to say that that's maybe not the best idea yeah. is there does it become about private security also not the best idea if there are private securities in all the parks because drinking is now ha yeah that see that's no i wouldn't want that so but like on a holiday weekend if people are drinking on mass in a park i think we can all see there, there is potential for security issues uh, to happen. So yeah. for me, part of the discussion is really, okay, knowing, knowing that security is going to be a, a, a thing, what are we doing to, to address that? Councillor Jamal Myers was one of 12 councillors that voted in favour of drinking in parks. He explained why. I mean, you know, for a variety of reasons. Number one, it's happening already. Public parks belong to everyone, including people who don't have backyards. And I think it was just a fair and equitable policy to allow people to safely consume alcohol in public parks. You know, I chose Millican uh, specifically because it had the right type of amenities, to, I think, to accommodate public parks. So access to washrooms, access to fountains, access to transit. Uh, and it met the other criteria laid out by the city. You know, COVID has shown that, you know, outdoor green spaces are good for everyone's mental health. Uh, and it showed that, you know, we can consume alcohol outdoors in a fun and responsible way. So I, you know, decided that Ward 23, my residents were ready for this. Certainly haven't heard anything negative uh, as of yet to the announcement. So I think people are going to be supportive of this policy. So I think there's some signage that has to be made around the policies about drinking in parks, for example, like what's expected, you know, regular signage about, you know, 
public intoxication is still illegal. Uh, you're expected to clean up after yourself. There's access to washrooms and water fountains if need be. Um, and also we have to get in place the resources to collect the data. One of the really heartening things about this pilot is that these parks are now, uh, these pilot parks are basically across the city except for Etobicoke. Uh, so we'll have a good sampling of data to see, you know, what works, what can be improved, what can be done differently if and when we decide to roll this out to every park in the city. So there are a number of factors that um, the city had put in the criteria for what factors would be allowed, what factors would decide which parks were appropriate for this pilot. So, for example, like I said before, you know, having access to washrooms and water fountains, also not being attached to schools, um, also not being close to water or cliffs. Uh, so, you know, I had already concluded that Milliken Park was the most appropriate park. And, you know, staff had concluded that as well. And just on my own observation in the park, there was already a lot of public drinking in a very safe, responsible way happening in the park. So I wanted to remove the stigma and let people know that, yeah, it's okay to drink in parks. Uh, this is something that's quite common in the rest of the world, particularly in Europe, even in you know other Canadian cities such as Montreal and Vancouver. So I think this was a positive step forward. And I think most people will enjoy you know having the option to enjoy a beer or a glass of beer. So it's interesting uh, what uh, some of the evidence has shown, at least anecdotally, is that when people are drinking uh, alcohol illegally in parks, they tend not to clean up after themselves because they're afraid of being shown carrying bottles or cans to the garbage cans. Uh, so they tend to just leave them where they are or hide them in bushes, etc. Whereas when it's legalized, they will then bring them to the garbage cans and put them there because, you know, we've removed that stigma from, you know, drinking in the parks. So there's that. And there's just this notion that somehow something bad is going to happen if people consume alcohol in the parks i you know people are consuming alcohol in the parks right now it's a law that we're not enforcing so i think it's you know incumbent upon us to you know have bylaws that reflect what you know the actual population behavior that's going on and make sure that we can have alcohol in parks in a fun and responsible way the pilot project was reviewed by the economic and community development committee on july 6th it will now move to city council for approval on july 19th <laughs> Single and Eligible held a gay professional speed dating event this Wednesday. The event ran from 7.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. at The Lodge on Church Street. It was a place where like-minded gay individuals in their 20s and 30s looked for their match made in heaven. The six-minute intervals were filled with chatter. And when time was up, individuals were encouraged to go meet and exchange numbers with another one of the 16 singles. Tickets cost nearly $60, and appetizers and drinks were provided. Many attendees expressed their discontent with dating apps, pointing to events like this as a better alternative. Sick of the dating apps. 
Um, I'm always on and off them. And when I'm off them, I feel like I'm never going to meet anyone. And then I wanted to do some pride networking for business in June. And then I saw that this came up and I'm like, how fantastic. Like, obviously not business focused, but it's just a really fun opportunity to meet people. People just present one way on the apps, like personality wise, and you meet them in person and it doesn't match or no one wants to meet in person or they want to meet in person so fast without really getting to know you and it's just like unreliable and it's been too long that I've been on and off them and I'm just so sick of it. Single and eligible web developer Leo Wang participated in the event himself. Here's what he had to say about it. it I think it's important we have this platform. We are living in a hookup culture like a the apps is dominating the dating world and uh, and uh, I don't think it's like a very uh, helpful to uh, make a human a uh, product and uh, not a lot of people uh, are very friendly on the app and also so many we call app hosts and uh, and uh, I think it's not a uh, it's more like for hookup for the apps and people on the apps sometimes it's like a like a it's a like a they don't look like a, their profile and all when they meet them the vibe is totally off and uh, some people are very like uh, like rude and also so and uh, and uh, it's not safe to send your like private pictures on the app so so it's and also the biggest thing is like uh, Sometimes you talk to someone, everything's fine, and then all of a sudden you got blocked. You have no idea what's going on. And uh, sometimes you talk to someone for weeks, and uh, they just go through for no reason. So it's like a waste of time. I just feel like it's, just, uh, it's not a very efficient, I, I would say. And uh, so that's why uh, I'm thinking like uh, we should have a platform for people who are more like, um, how do I say, relationship oriented, how more focus on the connection, more the superficial stuff. Uh, so that's why I think, because I still believe love in human, doesn't matter straight, gay, lesbians, uh, I still think it's uh, important and uh, I'm happy this platform, single and eligible, is, is happening and uh, is uh, helping people who has a similar mindset to gather them together. And I'm so happy I'm in this event. I met so many people like uh, have a really, really great energy and a great vibe. And I know they, they are also victims, also not benefiting from the apps. And, uh, and I'm surprised like uh, there are people who think like this. And uh, I think it's uh, good to have some meaningful deeper relationship to start with. So that's why I think this platform is important and uh, I hope we should uh, make it stronger. Yeah. Fardi and Alina hosted the event. I asked Alina why single and eligible decided to host these kinds of events. I just, I think it's important to have matchmaking for any kinds because it's important to let people know that there's world outside of our, of our phones and especially for people that are not heterosexual because it's been a norm and we, people have just been meeting 
heterosexuals have just been meeting all around the world all the time. I think it's more important that there was a space and an environment that felt safe for people of, uh, you know, when they want to meet the, the kind that they attract. And it's, it is nice for people to make a platform on that. I think especially for people, especially the, the, the kind of place that are available for men to meet other men, um, it's important that they meet at, at a designated location to talk and be on the same platform, same wavelength. Because there are, there are social apps that are only meant for hookups because the mindset is different. I believe here, Ashley is putting everyone as a like-minded mindset. They've come here to talk to people. They've come here to know about you. They've come here to share a drink with you. They've come, they've come here with the same mindset as the other person. Online, people can be of different mindsets. I mean, I could, I could want something else today online because I'm at it's one o'clock in the morning or I can want something because it's 9 p.m. But here I think it's everyone's just like-minded. The idea is that meet like-minded people. So you don't want to pair the wrong kinds. You want to make sure that you're pairing the right kind of people, the like-minded. Single and eligible will be hosting more of these events this month and next with varying age groups and sexualities. The next event will be held at the Lodge on July 22nd for lesbians aged 40s, 50s, and 60s. That's our show. You've been listening to The Final Word on CGRU 1280 AM in Toronto. I'm Gabriela Silva-Ponte. This episode was put together by myself and Owen Thompson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again next week.